Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. On Monday, we heard the governor's priorities, and now it's the legislature's turn. So far, COVID-19 and the governor's executive powers have dominated the conversation. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Senator Lori Den Hartog discusses transportation funding proposals and the state's backlog on road and bridge maintenance. Then Dr. Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press talk about the first week of the legislative session and the tone it's setting for the next couple of months. But first on Tuesday, Governor Brad Little announced that Idaho is ready for the next phase of vaccination rollout with public school staff and certain frontline workers eligible to receive the vaccination right now and all Idahoans ages 65 and older eligible to receive the vaccine starting February 1st. Idahoans age 65 and over along with teachers, school staff, first responders and other frontline workers will be included in the next phase of vaccine rollout. This will include an estimated 500,000 Idahoans. However, we will prioritize teachers, school staff, first responders, and some frontline workers between January 13th and January 31st, before making doses available to the 65 and up population starting February 1st. Why? Because the 65 and older population is enormous and there's still work actively being done to build up capacity among our providers to take on this population. We do not want to create a bubble or backlog. But on Friday morning, states got bad news from the federal government. Previously promised vaccine doses from the federal stockpile won't be coming next week because the federal government doesn't have the reserves. The Idaho Department of Health and Welfare say they aren't yet sure how that will affect next week's shipments, but said they received less than expected this week and anticipate just over 20,000 doses next week. For more, visit the Idaho Reports blog. This comes as cases have increased slightly again after a drop last week. Deaths are continuing to rise as well. As of Friday morning, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare has reported 155 deaths due to COVID-19 just since January 1st. For context, it took Idaho until mid-July to record the first 155 deaths. Meanwhile, the state's positivity rate has dropped to 11.4% last week, the most recent week for which data is available. On Monday, Governor Brad Little gave his State of the State address highlighting his Building Idaho's Future initiative. Little's budget proposal includes $160 million in permanent tax cuts, investments in broadband, and $20 million for summer literacy programs. We must ensure this school year is an anomaly and not a permanent, system-wide flaw for Idaho students in the next decade or more. We must make sure all young students are on track to read by the end of the third grade. Little also called for additional investments in roads, bridges, and pedestrian safety projects. 
My plan invests $126 million in state and local highway infrastructure projects and makes targeted investments in safe routes to schools, rail infrastructure, and community airports. I'm also proposing $80 million in new ongoing transportation funding. We cannot postpone securing a long-term funding source. We must address the transportation needs for this generation and the next. We must act now. The legislature and I will work together on a sustainable transportation funding plan, one that blends both general fund and reliable user fees to keep our economy driving forward. Idaho's transportation backlog has long been an issue, and while a seven-cent gas tax increase six years ago helped to boost revenue for transportation projects, Idaho's roads and bridges still have a maintenance backlog. A 2020 Idaho Policy Institute report estimated the state needs an additional $236 million in ongoing funds annually to address that backlog, far short of the $80 million Governor Little proposed. Senator Lori Denhartog, new chairwoman of the Senate Transportation Committee, joined me on Friday to discuss the governor's plan and what's on her priority list for this year. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator. I wanted to get your thoughts on the governor's transportation funding proposals. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, really excited about um, the amount of funding the governor is interested in pursuing for transportation this year. We know um, we know we're always behind, uh, not only in our expansion needs, but in our maintenance and upkeep. And so, there was a recent report out that we're you know 241 million behind every year in maintenance. And so, the governor has proposed not only the use of some one-time money to help ease the backlog for new projects and new construction, uh, but ongoing funding um, for maintenance and also new construction. So really excited about um, what that means for uh, our work as a committee this session and our work with our fellow legislators uh, to try to see what, what makes sense and what kind of package we can put together. I, I wanted to bring up that report. Um, you know, let's talk about the balance between the legislature's fiscally conservative approach and how deferred maintenance starts building up on itself and, and becoming a big um, backlog for Idaho. That report says that Idaho needs an additional 236 million ongoing just for the maintenance, and that doesn't include the the equipment that ITD um, and other agencies need to maintain to maintain the roads. Um, so if we're looking at population growth and, and hoping to maintain a strong economy, is the governor's proposal for 80 million in ongoing funds enough? You know, like many other, you know, needs that we face in our state, um, no proposal is probably ever enough. We have, um, we're trying to balance all the different competing needs of our state and of our citizens. Um, we're seeing an increased portion of our state budget being taken up um, 
in the health and welfare department's budget, particularly with Medicaid, um, and certainly education as our student population grows and our needs for our students change and grow, that takes up a greater proportion of our state budget as well. So I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we have an exact, you know, a proposal that says we're going to wipe out our, our deficit with an ongoing spending proposal. But I think, you know, we are going to be strategic about those investments and protecting the investments that the taxpayers have already made into infrastructure, which is our maintenance obligations, um, you know, and the upkeep and replacement of our bridges. You know, when we're talking about using general funds for transportation projects, this is a proposal that was controversial in years past, especially under former Governor Lutch Otter, who didn't want transportation competing with education for those general fund dollars. Um, it, it seems like views have shifted under Governor Little, and they've been shifting for a long time. But now that Medicaid, that Medicaid bill is coming in higher than initially pitched under Proposition 2 in 2018, and as um, Idaho's students, uh, there, there are more in the classroom as the state's population grows, tapping into the general fund, is that the right way to fund these projects? I believe that you're right. The conversation has shifted over the years um, from absolutely no general fund dollars on roads. It should all be user fees, which would be your gas tax registration, you know, all those types of property tax. We have property tax that goes towards transportation. Um, in my mind, again, transportation infrastructure is an appropriate function of government and our sales tax collections um, have been growing. They're on a strong growth trajectory. Some of that, because not some, a lot of it due to our population increase. And I think it is, I think it's a valid conversation to say we have competing needs and how should we determine, just like we do in our own household budgets, we have competing needs and limited resources, how should we spend those dollars? So I think it's a valid conversation to have. I think the current proposal is a balance between user fees and general fund. You know, some of the numbers, if you look at what um, all of the things related to transportation that contribute to the general fund, to sales tax in particular, I think the figure for the sale of used vehicles is about 180 million every single year. So, you know, you could argue that that is a user fee and, you know, it's flowing through the general fund through our sales tax collection, even though we don't separate it out that way. Uh, so I think there's value in that conversation. I've long been a supporter of a mixture of funding sources for transportation, and I really appreciate uh, the governor leading out on that this year. Yeah, when we discuss transportation, most people automatically think about roads and bridges and cars, but not everyone uses cars to get around. And this week, AAA Idaho came out with a report that said nationwide pedestrian deaths have increased 50% over the last 10 years, while Idaho's pedestrian deaths have increased about 70%. And those have been split between rural and urban deaths. And so where does pedestrian and bicycle safety fit into the conversation about Idaho's transportation needs? Yeah. I think safety is, is always a top priority for all of our transportation users, be they, um, you know, passenger vehicles, trucks, pedestrians, 
bicyclists. Um, pedestrian is, is always a top concern. One of the things we know is that while we don't have a specific dedicated uh, funding source at the state level for pedestrian projects, our local cities, counties, highway districts um, always include pedestrian safety when they are, you know, building new building new projects or improving their, their current system. And so, you know, the governor in his one-time proposal, I believe it was about 2 million um, was set aside for specific pedestrian safety improvement projects. And those numbers are concerning, you know, our population is growing. I think, you know, we've also heard concerns from some of our uh, law enforcement officers about, you know, folks running red lights more often and that that's creating a safety hazard. So some of this is, you know, there's some there's some growing pains, but you know, safety is a top priority for us. And even if we don't have a dedicated funding stream specific to those types of projects, doesn't mean that they aren't top of mind uh, as projects are planned and developed. You know, you say that that safety and and pedestrians are always included in the conversation, but as we've seen these deaths grow over the last 10 years, is that enough? Or does the state need a different approach to curb this growth in fatal pedestrian accidents? I think I think the conversation is ripe to be had this year, frankly. Um, you know, I think as we examine when and where and how um, you know, those tragic circumstances unfolded, you know, are there things that we can do in the design of projects? Sometimes it's not always just funding or money. You know, I, in my area, there was um, a tragic accident with um, a couple of school-age girls, some sisters out in Nampa, and, um, you know, it's, it's tragic and it's, and it's awful and I can't imagine what those families have been going through. So I think as we look at, you know, what does our existing system look like? Are there things that we can do in the change and design of our roadways for how pedestrians are interacting with that? Um, I think those are important considerations and that's that's not just a funding question. Um, you know, we've, we've seen really creative solutions that, you know, traffic engineers have been able to come up with that improves pedestrian safety. So those are things I think that we always have to consider. All right, Senator Lori Dan Hartog, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I appreciate it. Legislatures across the country have dealt with COVID-19 in different ways, with some delaying their sessions and others allowing for remote voting. But aside from socially distanced committee rooms and remote testimony from the public, the Idaho legislature is operating pretty much as usual with no allowance for remote voting. On Friday, Democratic Representative Muffy Davis tried to change that, making a motion that would temporarily suspend the House rule that requires in-person voting in limited circumstances. Vote count shows 11 in favor with 49 against and 10 absent. The motion has failed. That motion failed on a party line vote. Betsy, you've been covering this story. Um, what was the reaction on the House floor after Representative Davis's motion went down? Well, there, there was no debate on the motion. It was a non-debatable motion. So it was, it seemed a bit abrupt and the House immediately adjourned until Monday. Um, and I did speak with Representative Davis um, shortly after the vote, and she was in tears. She said she was devastated, um, that she felt like 
this virus is being treated as a political pawn, but it is not political to her. It is personal. Um, and, and she was quite stunned um, by the party line nature of the vote. I also spoke with a number of Republican representatives who voted against the motion. And among their reasons were um, not wanting, uh, being worried about precedent for future sessions, although of course this motion would have expired at the end of the current session or earlier if the House by a simple majority vote chose to lift it. Um, concern about suspending rules at all, although the House routinely suspends its rules for things like multiple readings of bills, um, eating and drinking on the floor, and so forth. Um, that we have better representation of the people when the representatives are here in person, and distrust of technology, that our technology is not good enough to allow remote voting or participation. Um, it, was, it was really kind of a remarkable moment. Dr. Kettler, I wanted to get your reaction. You've also been keeping an eye on how other, other legislatures have been handling COVID-19. Um, Idaho is one of a handful that doesn't allow for remote voting or, or doesn't have any um, other major mitigation efforts. They haven't delayed the session. Were you surprised by today's um, vote against changing the rules to allow Representative Davis to vote remotely? Well, I think, you know, this is something that all of our legislatures are dealing with how to try to safely meet during COVID, right? And some legislatures, like the Vermont legislature, has decided to be largely remote. Other states, as you mentioned, Melissa, have a lot of abilities for people to work remotely and vote remotely. And so we have had state legislators die of COVID-19 in the country, including the income, what would have been the incoming New Hampshire Speaker of the House. And so this is, you know, there are real concerns about people's health and trying to safely meet during this time. And so I think it's something that will continue to be an issue for the entire session, really. I mean, this isn't going to go away right away. This is something we're going to continue to deal with. You know, and Betsy, as I've spoken to some Republican lawmakers, uh, I, I get the sense that, you know, they met in August, they met in December, and there weren't reports of widespread outbreaks at the time that there is a sense that this danger is overblown. Basically, the sense that I am getting from the legislature this year is uh, overwhelmingly from the Republican majority is a complete and utter rejection and denial um, that the coronavirus pandemic is even really happening or matters anymore, and a desire to jettison all rules and restrictions and just go back to normal, even though we know that people in Idaho are dying um, because, as Senator Chuck Winder told me, um, he knows people who've died, and it's terrible, but we're all going to die someday. Um, and there are legislators saying things like, well, there's risk in life. Um, majority of the legislators are not wearing masks. Um, many are not observing social distance. Uh, some legislators, I think it's fair to say, really in both parties don't feel safe given their health condition. But the strictures that have been set up for this session are that essentially they are required to be here. Now the legislature does have a provision allowing lawmakers to appoint a substitute to sit in for them. And we have seen a couple of substitutes so far this session, but there are issues with that as well. Um, for example, that the substitute might be in danger, um, or that the representative might feel they could give better representation to their district by being here themselves. 
Um, there is even um, one House member who has not shown up on the floor at all thus far. Um, so this is a, a very odd situation. And it is not just the legislators. This building is empty compared to what it normally is, the Capitol, um, at the start of the legislative session. I have seen very, very few members of the public here, with the sole exception of representatives of Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Group, who have been here in fairly small numbers, but quite consistently not wearing masks, showing up at committee meetings. And thus far, those committee meetings, in many cases, have had nothing on the agenda <laughs> other than just organization. Um, there was one gentleman who was arrested on the first day of the session for um, an outstanding warrant from earlier protests who showed up in full clown makeup, dressed as the Joker, and sat in the front row at the Senate Transportation Committee hearing. And he's been here pretty much every day. But very few other, if any, other members of the public, numbers of lobbyists are way down, numbers of reporters are way down. You know, you mentioned this desire among a lot of lawmakers for things to get back to normal or how they were before. And we're seeing that in a handful of bills that were introduced this week um, in House and Senate state affairs aimed at the emergency order, the existing emergency order, and also future emergency declarations from the governor. And, and Betsy, you listened in on these hearings. That's right. There was a whole package of bills developed by the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate. And there were three bills introduced in the House and four in the Senate that weren't necessarily all part of that package, but some of them were. And those include things like allowing a constitutional amendment to allow the legislature to call itself back into special session whenever 60% of the members of each House want to do so. And that, of course, would have to go to the voters in the November 2022 general election. So if it were passed by a two-thirds majority in each house, that's how we changed the Constitution. That would take some time. There were also much more immediate provisions to completely change the way that public health emergency orders and all emergency and disaster declarations function in Idaho, making them all, all expire after 30 days unless the legislature extends them. And of course, that would mean if the legislature wasn't in session and couldn't yet call itself back into session, they couldn't be extended. And also making them expire if certain conditions change. Um, and then there were separate measures, one introduced by Representative Heather Scott in the House and another alternative version from Senator Chuck Winder in the Senate to end the current state of emergency over COVID-19. Representative Scott's measure would just cut it off right away um, with full acknowledgement that we would lose all of our federal aid, including FEMA funds now paying for 75% of the Idaho National Guard's deployment. Senator Winder's measure is designed to cut off the current state of emergency, except insofar as it allows us to receive federal funds. So it's an effort to allow those federal funds to continue to flow. And in fact, the Senate bills have tried to strike a balance um, by using some legal terms, although there's no attorney general's opinion to, yet to say whether or not this works, to say that all their restrictions on, on emergency declarations still somehow would not endanger federal aid from coming to Idaho. So we don't know really if you can do that or not, but that is part of the thrust from the Senate side. And then of course we saw a bill from House State Affairs Chairman Brent Crane um, that would immediately revoke the portion of the current emergency order that applies to gatherings. And so this is a concurrent resolution. It wouldn't have to go to the governor. 
if it passed both houses, it would take effect, and it would eliminate the current 10-person limit on all public and private gatherings. It would also eliminate all of the exemptions that are in there right now. That limit currently exempts religious gatherings, political gatherings, schools, and businesses. And it would eliminate provisions that are in there requiring bar patrons to be seated when they're served and tables in bars and nightclubs to be distanced apart. So some of this seems COVID specific and some of it seems aimed at the governor's emergency declaration authority, his executive authority in general. And Dr. Kettler, this push and pull between the executive branch and the legislative branch isn't new in Idaho. No, not at all. I mean, you you regularly have, you know, debates and kind of push and pull over executive and legislative powers, right? Like, you know, it's there are important checks there and, and both of them are going to want to exert as much power as they can. And what we saw across the country in 2020 was governors have to extend you know, and, and, uh, and implement pretty extensive emergency powers and declarations. And so this is, these are debates happening across the country in a lot of state legislatures about how to, you know, how for the legislature to be more involved, how to kind of limit some of the gov gubernatorial powers that have been extended or implemented during 2020, um, while still, you know, trying to figure out how moving forward, do we balance our emergency response if in future times of crisis, that might be some yeah, as, as we're talking about safety, a lot of the discussion has centered on COVID, but of course we're nine days out from the, um, from the breach at the U.S. Capitol. We're seeing the media reports that the FBI is warning um, that all 50 state capitals are at risk of armed protests getting out of hand in the coming week. Um, Dr. Kettler, what are you seeing is Idaho at risk? Well, I think, I mean, we've seen protests at, at in state legislatures get violent or, you know, get pretty, um, you know, emotionally pretty high, a lot of emotions in, in 2020 and some special sessions. Um, and so we've already seen some of this happen at the state level. We've had, you know, in, in the Michigan, Michigan governor, a threatened, you know, a threats of being abducted. So we've got, you know, we've had some of these concerns at the state level for a while now. And now we're seeing this, this broad concern across many states needing to beef up security at the state legislature. Some state legislatures are evaluating or not allowing the public in right now or changing how, how the public can access it. Sounds like Oregon's going to delay in-person meetings until after the inauguration. And so, yeah, you're seeing states start to really kind of try to take some measures for protection, uh, thinking about possible protests moving forward, particularly on the 20th. And Betsy, we've got about 90 seconds left, but you said that there are very few members of the public there right now, except for people affiliated with Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Group. Uh, what, are, are you sensing any tension between them and law enforcement? Are you sensing anyone who's getting nervous about safety? There is a very strong law enforcement presence at the Capitol this year, noticeably so. In many cases, there are more law enforcement, uniform law enforcement officers here than there are members of the public. Um, but everything has been calm thus far. Um, the people representing the Bundy Group have been making a point to try to be polite and say, we're, you know, kind of give a message, we're here to be good citizens trying to watch our government. So we have not seen 
any kind of um, clashes yet. Uh, on the first day of the session, though, they did set up a, um, a booth outside with a big sign saying impeach Brad Little, and they carried around um, pseudo-wanted posters with pictures of legislators and their home address. Are you anticipating anything on Wednesday, uh, the day of the inauguration, Betsy? I have no idea what to expect. Um, the legislature and the Capitol Commission have strengthened their rules with regard to activities in the Capitol. It's possible that they will be um, much more quick to respond and to shut down and to clear committee rooms, galleries, hallways, if there are any kinds of disturbances. But we're going to have a bunch of hearings on legislation next week, including the executive powers legislation. And we're going to have to leave it there. So sorry, we're out of time. But thank you too for joining us. And thank you for watching. We'll see you here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.